Have you heard? 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 Welcome to Have You Heard. I'm Jennifer Berkshire. And I'm Jack Schneider. And Jack, can we share with the world our exciting news? I did not open the registered letter that you sent to me, so I actually don't know what the news is. I thought the whole point of my corresponding with you via registered mail was that you had to open the letter. No, I, <laughs> I, I have to receive it. You have evidence that this is not your fault but there is no way for you to control my actions. Well, as everyone in the world knows, there is an election going on, and we're in this weird situation where, in a lot of states, education is really a pretty explosive issue. We just saw that in Kentucky and again in Louisiana, but yet it doesn't really surface much in the presidential race, except when it does. And then all of a sudden, it sort of bursts to the fore, and the journalists who write about it don't necessarily know much about education. So that gave Jack and I an idea. Uh, The idea is to do a little in-depth coverage of education and the upcoming election and to look at some of the issues that teachers and community members are particularly interested in and to also reach out to scholars and researchers for their perspective. Now, People are obviously wondering, gee, does that mean that Jack's going to leave the podcast studio and venture out into the world? That sounds scary, Jennifer. I, I'll, I'll be doing research in the archive. So we've already got a long list of places to visit. And by we, I mean me, because I just keep thinking <laughs> of more places to go. Um, and obviously, we can't do any of this without your support. So uh, if you check out haveyouheardblog.com backslash support, um, you'll see what we're up to in the year ahead. And also there's a little opportunity for you to weigh in if you're in a place where you think uh, would really benefit from uh, a little exposure, a little have you heard style storytelling, pitch us, we might be able to come. And now for some really big news. Jennifer, I don't know if you have looked up in the last week, but the sky has fallen. Oh yes, the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development has released the results of the 2018 PISA test, and they are not good. Well, so one thing that really interests me about the PISA tests is that you know we have this kind of clear example where we have radically different secretaries of education, one who's there now, Betsy DeVos, and her predecessor, Arnie Duncan. And both of them seized on what are essentially pretty much similar results to make a case for wildly different approaches. And we're going to talk more a little bit later about the whole sort of Duncan Obama theory of change. But DeVos leapt on the our poor to middling PISA performance recently to basically say, see, I told you, what we need is private school choice and homeschooling. And for those who don't know what PISA stands for, it's an acronym that stands for the Program for International Student Assessment. It's a test that is administered globally every three years and has been instituted since 2000. It's optional. 
but we've got dozens of countries around the world who are opting in in order to then be ranked against each other. And Jennifer, I did a little Googling uh, because that's what we professors do. We just sit around and use search engines and compile the results. Uh, and I found very quickly a number of articles that begin something like this. American schools were once unquestionably the best in the world. That is until data showed otherwise. And I just find this so fascinating, this negative hype machine that has arisen around these international comparative exams and essentially how much people love to sit around and wring their hands about our global status, which by the way this year uh, is eighth in reading, not so terrible I suppose, 11th in science and the one that's really got people worked up, 30th in math. How are young people going to be qualified for the jobs of the future? most of which haven't been invented yet, if they are 30th internationally in math. Well, fortunately, we were able to talk to someone who knows a lot about PISA and other international large-scale assessments, or ILSAs, as they're called. My name is Oren Pizmoni-Levy, and I'm an associate professor in the International and Comparative Education Program at Teachers College, Columbia University in New York. One of the things that Oren studies is how countries around the world react to the news of how their students fared on these international tests. And Jack, that's how you met up with him, if I'm not mistaken. I happened to be on a panel with him at AERA uh, a couple years ago, and he gave a great paper looking at uh, PISA shock around the world. Uh, and I actually was surprised that people were so shocked. Uh, and so I thought he'd be a great guest for us. I think people are all getting a really vivid glimpse into what your life is like when you're off the microphone. Yeah, that's right. I just I put my tweed coat on and zip off to conferences around the US and we just sit around like a bunch of nattering nabobs. So what is PISA shock exactly? It turns out that even though countries are all jostling for position within the same league table, as the PISA rankings are often called, their versions of the sky is falling are highly specific. Countries respond to global messages like PISA in different ways. Um, the U.S. compared to uh, Germany, for example, in the U.S., the response to PISA and PISA ranking is much more tame compared to Germany. In Germany, scholars are calling uh, the PISA shock that really shocked the system uh, in Germany where the um, federal government and also the state level uh, governments started to really look into education and to coordinate their efforts. So there was a really shock in the early 2000s when Germany uh, performed very um, low on the ranking. Or take Israel, where Oren grew up. There, the debate about PISA scores is all bound up with national security. Two examples for how they framed it, when Israel ranked below Iran in, the, in teams, I, as I remember, uh, some politicians made a statement that ranking lower than Iran is more dangerous than Iran having a nuclear weapon. Another one is uh, ranking lower than uh, many other countries is a national threat because we won't be able to develop the weapons we need in order to survive. I say we uh, in the context of the Israeli uh, uh, press. Um, there are different tactics that countries can project meaning on 
the international assessment for their own causes. So in Israel, as I said, national security was one, but another one that my colleague Gita Steiner-Hamsi identified in different countries is the issue of scandalization, how you can scandalize the system using these international benchmarks. So again, to go back to Israel, in Israel it was scandalizing the system by saying Israel is ranked as low as countries from where or from which we are importing labor to take care of different uh, tasks in Israel that Israelis don't want to do, like taking care of the elderly or building industry uh, and infrastructure. So there was a comment in a couple of newspapers showing how we are ranked below Kazakhstan, Romania, and other countries where we import labor from. And that was a way to shame the system or to scandalize the system and to mobilize some kind of uh, an energy for a policy reform in education. In other words, the scores by themselves aren't that meaningful. It's the context that really matters. I think this is an important uh, lesson for us um, as education scholars that the numbers by themselves are almost meaningless because everybody can project on them different meaning in different contexts. So, Jack, one thing that I think is really interesting about PISA is that unlike some of these other large-scale assessments, and now I feel like I have to call them that too because that's what they're called. You could call them LSAs if you wanted to, Jennifer. <laughs> I'll just get confused and jumble the acronym. So, you know, it's we're not just comparing, say, English scores in one country to English scores in another. The uh, ostensibly how students do on PISA is a prediction of how the country is going to fare economically. And to me, that's the most interesting part of this, but also the hardest sell. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things that I find so fascinating about this is that you are designing a test that is not actually connected with what is taught in any of the member countries participating in PISA, right? So it's not like the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development went around and asked people, you know, what do you teach in your country? We'll add that to the test. They came up with a testing program that they thought aligned with life skills and the sorts of uh, knowledge that students would need to have in order to succeed in the workforce, um, which, in David Labrie's words, is leveling the playing field with a bulldozer. And so there are definitely some questions about the degree to which this test actually is aligned with anything we really care about. What PISA cares about is measuring countries' future economic competitiveness based on the skills of their future workers. But as Orrin explains, there is a raging debate taking place about what, if anything, these student test scores actually predict. Uh, economists are arguing that this is what we call human capital theory, that countries' investment in the education of young people will translate into a better labor force uh, years after, and that will have an impact on the economic activity of the country uh, measured by GDP, for example. So economists uh, like Hanasek from Stanford keep showing and arguing in front of the Congress that there is a link, positive link, countries where students are doing well on these international assessments like PISA and TIMS are also years after seeing the benefits in terms of more economic activity or higher GDP. Sociologists from Stanford as well um, are also looking at the same phenomena and coming with different findings, suggesting that 
the link between um, achievement scores in PISA and other assessments and economic returns years after are very limited and in most cases really dependent on specific countries, uh, what we call the Asian Tigers. Um, a set of five to six countries in Asia, that that's where you really see the link between uh, achievement and economic return. Um, and without these countries, this whole idea doesn't really hold. Well, and Jack, as you mentioned at the very top of the episode, one of the things that makes PISA unique, and I can imagine that close listeners are noting that I say PISA and you say PISA. You say PISA? <laughs> And I say pizza. No, wait, what do I say? I say pizza. What do you say? <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Jack Schneider. Potato. <laughs> so one of the things that makes this unique is that you do have this just flurry of international reaction. And you see, for example, companies chiming in as well. And I came across um, a little video that ExxonMobil did a while back where they, they make the case for a number of policy changes, all linked to the idea that we really need to get those PISA scores up if we're going to compete internationally. And and, and I'm going to play a little clip of it. But as I watched it, I thought, you know, there are some other problems, pressing problems that I really think ExxonMobil might want to put its corporate might behind right now. If you made a list of countries from around the world with the best math scores, the United States would be on that list in 25th place. Let's raise academic standards across the nation. Let's get back to the head of the class. Let's solve this. Now, PISA assumes, just like ExxonMobil, that the ultimate goal of a country is economic growth and competitiveness. But at a time when we're confronting so many pressing global problems, like, for example, how much longer we're actually going to have a globe, Oren says that that assumption deserves to be questioned. PISA scores and other international large-scale assessments are really focusing our attention on economic growth as a rationale for why we need even to measure and improve education. However, when you think about the current challenges we have of sustainability challenges, balancing the people, the planet, and the profits, or climate change as one of the most serious threats humanity's experience, um, we need to think about education and its contribution, not necessarily to economic development, but to sustainable development or to sustainability uh, broadly defined, looking at the environment, looking at the well-being of people, etc. And I think that the current measures of PISA and TIMSS and other assessment don't really allow us to look at these issues in a serious way. So while, yes, it's important for policymakers to do well on PISA, I'm not sure that doing well on PISA will really help us to do well as a country or as humanity when we are facing climate change and sustainability challenges. So one of the things that really fascinates me about the PISA test is that there's one guy who's really associated with it. His name is Andreas Sleicher. He's a German statistician. And um, just to give people a sense of who I'm talking about, I'm going to play a clip. This is from one of Jack's favorite things in the world. That would be a TED Talk. (laughs) 
Radical openness is still a distant future in the field of school education. We have such a hard time figuring out that learning is not a place, but an activity. But I want to tell you the story of PISA, OECD's test to measure the knowledge and skills of 15-year-olds around the world. And it's really a story how international comparisons have globalized the field of education that we usually treat as an affair of domestic policy. It's so funny to hear one person basically talking about this test like it's his baby because by comparison, we have a national test here in the U.S. It's called the NAEP. It stands for the National Assessment of Educational Progress. It's been around for decades and it's run by the Institute of Educational Sciences and there are, you know, Lots of bureaucrats, career education officials inside the U.S. Department of Education who work on the NAEP, and I don't think any of them would go give a TED talk about it. Well, maybe they should. I mean, maybe, they, maybe they're doing it all wrong. <laughs> that's right. That's right. We all need a TED talk. Well, and I think what's important about the fact that you have this one individual playing this outsized role is that not only does he comment about PISA results, but he actually sort of travels around and gives countries kind of chiding, prescriptionish advice about what sorts of uh, reforms they should consider adopting if they want to ensure that their students are prepared to meet this very uncertain future. Yeah, interestingly, uh, you know, he talks out of the one side of his mouth about how countries should not necessarily look at these rankings and you know make policy determinations based simply on where they placed, and then out of the other side of his mouth about how important it is to take the results of PISA and act on them. And I think as a result of this kind of mixed messaging, we have seen that these international comparisons really can justify reforms with which the data themselves have no connection. And so we have seen internationally, uh, all sorts of reform efforts. Uh, in Portugal, for instance, uh, there was an effort to tie uh, teacher assessment to PISA scores um, that really aren't justified by the methodology of the exam or even by the results that countries have seen. So you just heard Andrea Schleicher talking about PISA as a test that measures the skills of 15-year-olds around the world. Well, it turns out that the test doesn't exactly measure all of their skills, just the ones that their home countries have determined are important. Oren says that as the global competition over test scores has heated up, the definition of what matters has gotten narrower and narrower. Early on, um, international assessments or comparative studies of education looked at a different spectrum of topics. Math, science, reading, second language, literature, and civic education. Unfortunately, since the 90s, we are seeing an interesting puzzle. On one hand, there is a growth in how many assessments are happening. PISA, teams, and pairs are happening on a regular basis. And on the other time, uh, on the other side, we see a shrinkage in what the topics that are being covered and what countries participate in. The U.S., for example, participate in assessments that are targeting literacy or reading, math, and science. And the U.S. decided not to participate in international assessment that look at civics and citizenship education. 
And I think this is really telling something about what we value as the role of education in a country. If we don't care about looking at what kids in eighth grade, for example, thinks about immigration, women's rights, um, uh, sustainability, participation in the community, service learning, etc., I think we are missing a big chunk of what education could do and could be. And by focusing and narrowing on the science and the math and the reading, we are really narrowing down what's the meaning of education. Oren is part of a growing group of scholars who are asking tough questions about the influence and limitations of PISA, but he thinks that getting the OECD to change its approach will take more than criticism, which is why he's been looking at the opt-out movement in the U.S. for inspiration. Scholars, scholars in the field of education broadly and in comparative education are pointing to many concerns about the, the PISA machine. Uh, people are worried about the methodology. People are worried about the consequences intended or unintended of uh, PISA. And there is a question of uh, how can we move forward with this uh, assessment regime? And one of the things that I'm really inspired these days is by the um, uh, climate movement, the youth climate movement around the, the world. And I was wondering how it would look like if we can engage the youth people that are experiencing the PISA in schools, whether they take the exam or whether they are subjected to interventions that are coming as a result of the exam. And I wonder how it would look like if these kids will say, you know what, PISA is not going to serve us well in terms of sustainability, climate change solutions, and we are going to boycott it. What we see in the U.S. in the opt-out movement of parents and kids opting out from a federally mandated standard test I wonder how it would look like at the global level when youth will opt out or will sabotage data collection in the PISA. And maybe that will send a signal to international organizations that if you want to use education for a public good, the, the need that we have now is sustainability and not necessarily economic development. In other words, if adults are having no luck pushing back against what Oren calls the international assessment regime, maybe the kids will have more luck. I think it's time for us to engage youth in the conversation. And we, are, we might take the risk that once we engage them in this conversation, they might decide that opting out actively or passively from this assessment might be their way to voice concern about what are we doing with the education system locally and internationally. That was Oren Pismoni-Levy. He's an associate professor of international and comparative education at Teachers College at Columbia University. And Jack and I will be right back to wrap things up. Now, Jack, I don't know if you remember way back in 2013 when the PISA scores came out, but there were a number of prominent thinkers influencers who rushed to Shanghai to get try to get at the bottom of what the Shanghai secret was and um, I you know I, I had a vague memory of this and I went back and looked and so Tom Friedman your favorite columnist he's actually, my favorite he and David Brooks are tied for number one with me so he actually wrote a <laughs> column about his visit to Shanghai he was there with Wendy Kopp the founder of Teach for America and you know they were there they wanted to visit some classrooms and see what Shanghai had figured out and it turned out that they had figured out a lot of things. And one of them was, you know what? 
class size really doesn't matter. They visited some really impressive uh, classes of 50 kids or more. And what, what matters more is the quality of the teacher. And I was thinking how much has changed since he wrote that column six years ago. And one of them is that the whole, you know, it's gotten much more complicated to hold China up as an example. Yes, it was so fitting that the story about the PISA results in the New York Times was on the front page right next to a story about how China is working to develop facial recognition software in order to implement a next generation surveillance state. And so it's absolutely worth thinking through. I might be willing to accept that China has us on math scores uh, by you know some margin, but I would say that when I walk through American schools, I'm not just impressed by the math instruction that happens in most of them. Uh, I am also impressed by the kinds of civic competencies that schools are working to help young people develop. Uh, I'm impressed by students when they're engaged in arts and music education, when they're out on the athletic fields. They're learning all sorts of lessons there, and all of that takes time away from preparing for a standardized test in math. And I think that it's important to remember that some of those trade-offs are absolutely worth it. Well, Jack... People who listened to our most recent episode about Denver will remember that at the end of that episode, you made me a promise. Oh no, I don't remember. What, what was it? Well, every at the end of every episode, it's my job to walk listeners to the edge of the paywall and try to convince them to take the leap and become one of our Patreon supporters. Oh, did I say I was going to sit on top of the paywall and beckon? Well, because usually what you do is then you spring into action and you undercut me <laughs> yeah, and, right, you, and you, right. you give a moving speech about how, well, you know what? Really, you don't need to do that. Yeah. Okay. Here goes. Folks. It's the holiday season, and this is the holiday gift that I am giving to Jennifer. The gift is this. Our podcast, I think, is pretty great, but we are a spit and chewing gum operation and we are actually we can't even afford chewing gum so whatever well, it is. Well, I was going to say we are running out of chewing gum. And uh, so here's our holiday appeal. Give us $1 a month as a Patreon subscriber. And doing that will not only help us stock up on chewing gum for 2020 and keep us in business, but it will also give you access to our In the Weeds segment, as well as other goodies like a reading list that you will have access to as a Patreon member. So as you're thinking about gifts for the teacher in your life or for yourself, if you're thinking about how to make a small difference in the world in addition to the big difference you're making in lots of other ways, consider joining as a Patreon member. Go to patreon.com and search Have You Heard. So Jack, the only problem with that very, very moving sales pitch was that you actually have to pay $2 a month to get access. Oh no, do you really? <laughs> that was a little loud. <laughs> oh, oh no, do you really? That's Okay, Let, folks. <laughs> $2 a month, you can do it. That's it. Okay. That, that's that's the addendum. So I'm sure people want to know, what are we going to be talking about in the weeds this time? Well, at the very top of the episode, we announced our very exciting project for 2020 that we're going to be doing some education and politics focused pods. And I want to give you a sneak preview about one that I have in the works. And that is a trip to Georgia. And Jack, do you know why we're going to Georgia? Do you mean Tbilisi, Georgia? 
to see, we're going to see why they did so well on the pizza. <laughs> <laughs> I think you mean Atlanta, Georgia. I do mean Atlanta. Now, as many, many people know, the New York Times recently ran a story about the black-white charter divide and how black voters are chafing as they feel that the Democratic Party is has abandoned them on charter schools. And this got me thinking, gee, Stacey Abrams ran for governor of Georgia on a very staunch public education platform and basically arguing that the taxpayers were getting their money wasted in in Georgia charter schools. And I felt like, I think we're missing something. I better head there. The last thing that I want to do, Jennifer, before we sign off is share our new idea for a recurring segment, which you and I have tentatively called 30 Seconds of Sunshine. But I think we should double that because I think everybody needs at least 60 seconds of sunshine in their lives in these dark times. So we often talk on this show about things that people should be paying attention to and possibly worried about. But every day across America's classrooms, in our uh, neighborhoods, at our colleges and universities. I feel like I should be playing the violin here. There is inspiring work happening. And we want to be able to elevate that just a little bit. And so if there's something special happening in your school or in your community, please share that with us. The way that you can reach out is by tweeting at HaveYouHeardPod. And for every episode, we'll select somebody and then we'll record an audio clip with that person, 60 seconds in length, that we will then share in the next episode. And we'll try to do this throughout 2020 as a means of bringing a little sunshine and good cheer to everybody. Jack, I don't think I've ever said this before, but you had a really good idea. (laughs) Well, we'll see if it works. Maybe nobody does it. So maybe we'll have to edit this out on the uh, archive. Until next time, I'm Jennifer Berkshire. And I'm Jack Schneider. This is Have You Heard. 